Episode 7, The Kingdom of Israel. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and we try to see how those events shaped our modern world. This is Episode 7, The Kingdom of Israel. Back in Episode 5, I mentioned that Israel had an outsized influence on the history of the Western world, considering its size and its significance in ancient history. If you were to go back in time to the ancient world and you visited some other part of the Mediterranean at the time, like Greece, and asked them, hey, what about Israel? They would have said, who? Israel was really pretty insignificant in the ancient world, to be honest. It only really matters to the affairs of the great nations around it because it's occasionally in the way. Kind of like my small dog Chipper is often in the way when I'm trying to get into the kitchen. Assyria wants to attack Egypt, and on their way to the kitchen, I mean to Egypt, they have to go through Israel. Later, Babylon comes again on their way to Egypt, and what? Israel's in the way. Despite being tiny and weak and strategically not really that important, and not having a lot of resources or people, Israel somehow manages to survive when a lot of the nations around them did not. Moab, gone. Edom, gone. Philistines, gone. But Israel manages to stay around and still alive and kicking when it's conquered by Rome in 63 BC. We'll come back to that conquering in a bit, of course, but for now, let's take a look at what might have been called the Golden Age of Israel, the kingdom of David and Solomon. After the exodus from Egypt, Israel had been a sort of loose collection of tribes led by the tribal elders and by judges who were sort of appointed over those tribal elders, and they lived in land that they had taken from other tribes. So two things to mention here about this, right? First, territory and land ownership were really different back in the ancient days. Today, we see ownership as this kind of cut and dried thing, and it's very specified and legally circumscribed, right? I own the land at this particular address. It's marked off by this fence and it's my land up to the fence. And on the other side, it's my neighbor's land. So it's, this is my land once I pay off the bank. But land ownership in the ancient world was much, much less specific. It was more like, hey, you know, our tribe has been on this land from that palm tree over there to the dry riverbed over by that hill and down to the edge of that line of small bushes. And that's sort of our land. We've been here for several generations. But there were also huge areas of land where, like, whose land is this? And it's not exactly clear. There's like empty spaces that no one's dwelling on. And if someone moved in and occupied that space, and once their sheep had been grazing on that patch of land for a while, it was kind of seen as their land. Second, Ownership itself, especially before writing was really, uh, besides being invented, just was uh, prevalent enough that people used it everywhere. Ownership itself was much less clear, and there wasn't quite the same concept we have today of this piece is mine and that piece is yours. You know, if you squatted on some unoccupied land, after a while, it's just yours. It's not written down anywhere that it was somebody else's. You've been squatting on it for two generations. It's kind of yours. Lots and lots of land was just sort of unoccupied that way. And if you're not occupying the land, like literally living on it, it's hard to say, hey, that's my land. Anyway, Israel takes over a lot of land that's sort of unoccupied and it's got some people in it in places, but there's a lot of empty space. Uh, And the land is sort of bordered this way. On the west edge, there was the, uh, the, a line of hills that separated the 
the coastal plain from the inlands. And on the other side of the hills were the Philistines and the cities that the Philistines had built along the coast, right? So that's the east side. On the north, there was sort of the Sea of Galilee, and there was a few tribes up in that area and maybe a little beyond the Sea of Galilee, but that was kind of the northern border. On the east, there was the Jordan River and the Valley of the Jordan. There were two tribes on the a little past the Jordan, but by and large, the Jordan was kind of seen as the border. And then on the south, there was kind of a desert that uh, was sort of began south of the Dead Sea, and nobody lived down there south of that desert. So the territory that was controlled by the other tribes around them wasn't all that well marked out. The Philistines controlled the land immediately around their cities, and they kind of felt like they owned the land up into the mountains or the hills, but it wasn't exactly clear. And so the Israelites were starting to settle in that area and settling in the area of Moab and Edom and on the other places. So just settling in places where no one was settling. Settling. So for several generations in the Promised Land, the Israelites are just this loose group of tribes and they have consistent trouble from the other tribes and countries around them. The Moabites, the Edomites, the Philistines are consistently raiding Israelite territory. But a series of judges who are appointed over the tribes lead Israel to defend themselves time and again. Eventually, however, the Israelites decide that they, like the other countries around them, need a king. And they choose a really tall guy named Saul to be their king. I found this really good quote about kingship in the book The History of the Ancient World by Susan Wise Bauer. She's talking about how kings were sort of a necessary evil in the ancient world. And she says this, Kingship was a gift of the gods for man's survival. Kings were supposed to bring justice, to keep the strong from driving the weak into poverty and starvation. Clearly, a king who had to enforce justice had to be strong enough to carry out his will. Yet, this very strength was also dangerous, giving rise to oppression. And when that happened, the fabric of the city and the country began to twist and fray. In places where the king was the law, if the king himself became corrupt, then the nature of the law itself also became corrupt. So her point there is that in some ways, a king is a way of the people creating for themselves a power that will protect them, both from other tribes and also from oppression within. And so if it's a good king and he's just and he has enough power to carry out his will, he can enforce justice when there's no justice and there's no law. It can be the king's word and everybody has to follow it. But that very strength, as she says, leads to the right or the ability, I guess, to oppress those very same people. And if the king's not a good person, then by his own strength, he will oppress people and he won't be a good king. And so you see that consistently in the history of the ancient world, how kings will rise up and then they'll be there to protect their people, but then they begin to oppress their people as well. And we see that story happening again and again, also in the nations of Israel and Judah. So the nation of Israel selects Saul to be their king, and and he has an up and down reign as a king um, and, and doesn't really do that great a job. Saul, at first, however, organizes all the tribes of Israel, and he creates an army, a small ragtag army, to fight the Philistines. The war with the Philistines goes on for several years, with raiding in both directions from both sides. The Philistines, right, are a much better army, though, and they have much greater resources, including chariots and iron weapons. So they chase Saul's army around for a while, 
And then at one point, both armies are apparently camped on these two hills with a valley in between them, and they're just sort of staying there camped, eyeing each other. The Philistines send out their biggest guy, a huge guy named Shaquille O'Neal, I mean, sorry, named Goliath, and they expect Saul, who's also very tall, to come out and fight Goliath. But Saul hesitates and stays in the camp. So Goliath comes out each day for days on end and yells challenges and insults at the Israelites. According to the Bible in 1 Kings, a shepherd boy, whose brothers are in Saul's army, the shepherd boy comes to the Israelite camp and he sees what hap- what's happening. And he utters what is one of the best lines in battle history, right? And he says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? That's a great line. The shepherd is named, of course, David, and he goes on to fight Goliath with just a slingshot. When he comes down, Goliath reportedly says to him, to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And David retorts, in King James English, Thou comest to me with a sword and a spear and a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, who thou hast defied. And this day the Lord will deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day to the fowls of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Apparently, David was good at taunts and also good with a slingshot. He kills Goliath with a stone from his slingshot and then cuts off his head and becomes a hero. And there's this tension for a while between David the hero and Saul the sort of failure as a king, and they go back and forth until eventually David deposes Saul and he becomes the king. And this begins the real golden age of Israel with the reign of King David. The tribes of Israel are united under David, and he defeats a lot of the other neighboring tribes and some of the other countries around them, and he captures the key city of Jerusalem. It has walls, and it's kind of a fortress city, and he captures it, and he makes it his capital, and then he embarks upon a building campaign in and around Jerusalem that includes building a big palace for himself because he's the king, and he establishes a kingly dynasty that goes on for many generations, at least for part of the nation. David seems to be the first Israelite that is historically recorded outside of the Bible. There's a stone inscription from about the 9th century BC, that's around 800 BC, that records a victory by an Aramean king over the king of the house of David. So it doesn't name the king, it just says the king of the house of David, but it's referring to David. Outside of the Bible, that's the oldest record of someone who is mentioned in, in the Bible, so 800 BC or so. Just for context, David's reign is about 200 years before Homer writes the Iliad and the Odyssey. So he lived during the Greek Dark Ages. David reigns from about 1000 BC to about 962 BC. So within 200 years of his reign, there's an inscription that mentions his name. Um, He lived during the the Greek Dark Ages. And it makes sense to mention that because the Philistines might have been descendants of the Mycenaeans who left Greece at the beginning of those Dark Ages, or left Greece and maybe even caused the Dark Ages by migrating away. Anyway, David consolidates his power in Jerusalem. It becomes the center of the nation of Israel. There are ongoing archaeological digs in Jerusalem today, right? And they seem to have uncovered David's palace, although there's some dispute about this. As I said, David reigned as a king from about 1000 BC to about 962 BC, so not quite 40 years, but that's a pretty long reign by ancient Near Eastern standards. 
David apparently had several wives and a lot of children. According to the Bible, there was a lot of palace intrigue and scandal. David was apparently a gifted poet, and he wrote many of the psalms that we find in today's Bible. Many of the psalms start with a little header that says, A Psalm of David. So early on, those who gathered up the collection of psalms recognized that David's psalms were important. And so they captured a bunch of them and and collated them into the psalms. David is also recognized in a unique way in the Hebrew scriptures. He's singled out several different times as, as the only king that is described as a man after God's own heart. David's described this way several times, despite his many failings as a king and a father. In some ways, he's the third most important character in the Old Testament, after Abraham and Moses. He's portrayed as the ideal king, even more so than his son Solomon, who's in some ways more successful as a king than David was. But David is described, despite his flaws, as kind of the ideal king, and the ideal king embodies this idea of being a man after God's own heart. It's interesting that the chroniclers who wrote about David are pretty blunt about describing his flaws and his failures. He comes off as as a real person who did some great things and who tried to follow God, but also made some really substantial mistakes. And one of those substantial mistakes, uh, sleeping with his general's wife and then killing the general, uh, one one of those mistakes ends up creating his son Solomon. When he dies, he leaves the kingdom to Solomon. According to the Bible, when Solomon inherits the kingdom, he's visited by God, who says that he will grant Solomon whatever Solomon asks for. So Solomon wisely asks for wisdom. The rest of the biblical depiction of Solomon is a description of his wisdom and the wise things that he does, and also of the greatness of the kingdom as he uh, expands its borders and brings peace to the nations of, of Israel and the nations around there. He reigns over this large area, the largest extent of the nation of Israel, and, and brings peace and apparently brings a great deal of wealth. Um, as I mentioned, a lot of the Psalms are attributed to David, but most of the Proverbs in the book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes are attributed to Solomon. And another major thing is attributed to Solomon, the first Hebrew temple. In the Mosaic books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, a lot of time and text is given to the construction, layout, and worship rituals of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a huge tent that the camp of Israel camped around and then followed when they were moving through the wilderness. It was the center of the worship of Yahweh and the place where the priests performed all the rituals that were described in the books of Moses. And it was described in the Bible as the place where God's very presence dwelt within this tabernacle, this tent. Uh, The tabernacle moves around for years and years in the early days of of Israel, but eventually it kind of settled down more or less permanently at the town of Shiloh, which is a bit north of Jerusalem, and it's kind of in the center of the promised land. David, when he was the king, started the process of creating a permanent temple for God in Jerusalem, but it's actually Solomon who finally builds it. The Temple of Solomon was built around 957 BC. It was built on a high place within Jerusalem. There is strong archaeological evidence of the existence of a temple from Solomon's time in the spot where currently the Islamic shrine, the Dome of the Rock, now stands. Uh, There's no doubt that that there was a temple there in the time of Jesus. That's where Herod built his temple. That archaeological evidence is very solid. But there's archaeological evidence beneath that of other temples and even the temple of Solomon. There's evidence of the rebuilt temple in between 
So uh, we'll get to that whole storyline in a bit. But Solomon's temple, there are pieces of it that they have uh, excavated near it and said, all right, these are the stones from the temple of Solomon, or at least from some of the walls. The Bible records that Solomon's temple was later destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And that was about 587 BC. So Solomon's temple stood for almost 400 years. I said that David was the third most important character in the Old Testament. It's not a stretch to say that the temple itself is the fourth most important character. After David, really the most important thing going on in the history of Israel is what's going on with the temple. Is it there? Is it destroyed? Is it being rebuilt? Are we having worship at it? Is it cleansed? Is it purified? What's happening at the temple? It's, it's a very important piece of the rest of the story of Israel after King David. Having a permanent temple for their God is a huge deal to the Israelites. It's one of the central themes of the whole rest of the Old Testament, and it's of huge importance in the day of Jesus, when Jesus comes around in the New Testament. In addition to building the temple of God, Solomon also brings peace, riches, and expansion to the kingdom, and it's fair to say that the days of Solomon and David were the high point of the nation of Israel, its golden age. After Solomon dies, though, the kingdom splits. David and Solomon's descendants rule in the south, and the other tribes of Israel in the north, they break off and they create their own kingdom, and they have someone else uh, as their king. So the kingdoms become known as Israel in the north and Judah in the south. The southern kingdom is still known as Judah when the Romans get there. The Romans called it the province of Judea. It's called Judah because it's it, the, the biggest tribe around the city of Jerusalem was the, the tribe of Judah, and they were the ones uh, in the south that followed David and the, his line of kings. So after the kingdom of David and Solomon, Israel as a country, neither the north nor south, were ever an important force in the area again. There's a stone inscription from the reign of Shalmaneser III, one of the kings of Assyria, that mentions King Jehu of Israel, and it has an image of Jehu prostrating himself before Shalmaneser. Neither the northern kingdom of Israel nor the southern kingdom of Judah would ever rise to prominence again in this region. The northern kingdom was eventually completely conquered by Assyria. The Assyrians were a very barbaric culture, especially to the people they conquered. They were not kind to any of the lands that they conquered anywhere. They tended to either kill or enslave all of the conquered people, scatter them and spread them out, and then populate this, the conquered lands with native Assyrians that, that they would sort of colonize the land with people from Assyria. And this is one of the reasons later on that we see hostility in the New Testament between the Jews and the Samaritan tribes. The Jews were descendants of Judah, hence the name Jew, and the Samaritans were descendants of both the Israelites, who had split off from Judah, and they were also um, descendants of the Assyrians who had settled into that area. So the Jews saw them as both traitors and half-bloods. That's one of the reasons for all the tension we see between them in the New Testament. The kingdom of Judah in the south continues for several more generations after Israel in the north was destroyed by the Assyrians. But then in 586 BC, Judah is conquered by the Babylonians on their way to Egypt, who destroyed Solomon's temple and they took away all the ritual objects from the temple. The Babylonians took many of the Jews and almost all the Jewish leaders away to Babylon. Although they let them, when they were in Babylon, they let them sort of keep their own ethnic identity and have their own little sort of suburbs where the Jews lived together. 
They weren't destroyed as a people in the way that the Assyrians destroyed the, the Israelites. So the Jews held on to their identity during the 70 years that they were captive in Babylon. They called this time the exile, and they saw it as God's punishment for their nation having turned away from God. Eventually, Babylon was also conquered by Cyrus the Great of Persia. We'll come back to Cyrus in a little while because those same Persians had some epic run-ins with our friends the Greeks, and we'll talk about that in an upcoming episode. But for now, it's enough to point out that Cyrus... When he conquered places, he let go the people he had conquered. And so he let them return to their homelands. So when he conquers Babylon, he takes the people who have been conquered by the Babylonians and he lets them go back to their homelands. And there's a famous inscription on several places that it's been found on stone um, called the Edict of Cyrus, where Cyrus declares that he's letting people go back to their homelands. So this includes the Jews. And they begin to come back to the area around Jerusalem sometime around 538 BC. As part of their return, they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and they also begin to rebuild the temple, though it was not anywhere near as glorious as Solomon's temple had been. So this is called the second temple. It's the temple of Nehemiah, and it's a rebuilt temple, but it's not Solomon's temple, the first temple. Still, it was a big deal to them to have their temple back, and they took the temple rituals and the law much more seriously from then on until the Romans come and destroy it all again. As I said earlier, for being such a small nation and being relatively unimportant on the world stage, Israel has had an outsized influence on Western history. That's due in large part because of the influence of the Bible on the history of the West. And since the Bible was, for a very long time, the best-preserved historical record of the ancient world, the history of Israel was well known. From the fall of Rome in the late 400s AD until the 1800s, there was very little known in the West about the history of the ancient Near East. In the 1800s, though, European archaeologists began to unearth ancient cities and eventually ancient texts, and these things began to shed new light on ancient history. There was, for a long time, a strong bias among these 19th century academics that the Bible was just all myth. They also thought that about the Trojan War, too, that it was just a myth. Uh, But more and more archaeological excavations started supporting the stories of the Bible and also the Iliad. And so today there's a grudging acceptance, even among like anti-Bible academics, that the Bible does preserve a valid history of the nation of Israel and does preserve valid history of Israel's interaction with some of the other neighboring nations. One of the other reasons that the tiny nation of Israel has had so much influence in the West is that the Jews have always managed to survive and maintain their identity, even in very hostile circumstances. So eventually the Romans destroyed Judah in 70 AD, and the Jews after that were dispersed all over the Mediterranean and also all over Europe. There were Jewish communities in all the major cities of Europe by the Middle Ages. And despite all sorts of attacks on them, pogroms, exiles, even a holocaust, the Jews managed to survive and they managed to maintain their identity. So they've been a part of Western society for a long time, and they have been spread thoroughly throughout Western society because they settled in so many different places. They've been successful in important areas like business, academia, science, and politics. And so they've continued to have an influence on Western thinking, on Western civilization structure, on the direction of Western politics. Despite their small size 
and their humble beginnings, the people of Israel have had a big impact on the Western world, an impact that needs to be considered alongside much more prominent empires, like the Greeks and the Romans. Speaking of the Greeks, in the next episode, we'll look at some of the most famous battles in all of history. And, speaking again of badass battle quotes, we'll look at two of the most badass battle quotes of all time when we look at the wars between the Greeks and the Persians. Mm -hmm.